Welcome to episode 21 of the Kevin Rook Show. Today's conversation is with NOAA's CTO, Hussein Badakhchani. In our conversation, we discussed exactly what NOAA is. They're branding themselves as the money app of the future. We discussed some of the different features and different mechanics in NOAA's app that I honestly haven't seen in any other Bitcoin apps to date. Uh, we also discussed how you can spend and save and earn and pay Bitcoin in NOAA, uh, and, and they're planning to release this app in private beta early 2022. So we got a little glimpse into exactly how some of these features will work. If you're enjoying this show so far, and if you, you like this episode, the best way you can let me know is by sending in sats, sending in comments, sending in questions over the Lightning Network. I read every comment, and this month we are at a record high number of sats sent in. Actually, we had an enormous SAT payment today. Uh, we'll get to that at the end of the show in the lightning round. But quick thank you to everyone who has sent in SAT so far. And before we get into the episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor. That is Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning Node infrastructure. You can check them out at voltage.cloud. And we will have more from Voltage later in the show in the lightning round. Hey, thanks for joining me on today's call, Hoos. Uh, how about we start off with a discussion about what you're building at NOAA and why it's important? Sure, well, Kevin, it's a pleasure to be invited to speak on your podcast. So what is NOAA? We try and describe ourselves as a crypto-native neobank, and I think that description is important for me. I come from a fintech background, and cryptech for me is separate to fintech. Definition is really straightforward for me. If you're building against the blockchain as your primary means of reconciliation in the products that you're building, you're cryptech. If you're really focused on uh, building against a traditional financial system and making it easier to use for ordinary people, that's fintech. So we're a crypto native um, uh, neobank. We're offering products around earning, and I think it's important to get this kind of roadmap right as we discussed a little bit earlier. We're going to provide products around earning, saving, sending, and paying. And the order is important because of the target market that we're um, targeting, the market segments that we work in. Um, our founders have a lot of experience in frontier and emerging markets, and they, that's informed our products roadmap significantly. So the company is predicated on the principle that if you can store value, grow it over time, and then transfer that value across space without friction, you ostensibly have the means to lift yourself out of poverty. That's the tools that you need to do that. And that's, that's what our founders have observed in these frontier markets. So people are poor, not because they're lazy or stupid. They're poor because they don't have the ability to accrue capital over time. They're running just to stand still, and the governments are repressing them financially. So if you're in, let's say, Pakistan or Turkey, you don't necessarily have access to the savings vehicles, the savings instruments that we have in advanced economies. You don't have access to blue chip stocks. You can invest in the local economy, like stock market, if one exists, but they tend to be pretty volatile and, and also you know, just dubious in terms of their nature. A lot of the companies that are registered in some of these stock markets are not the best investments. As opposed to, let's say, at least the UK and the US stock markets are very tightly regulated, so you have a means of storing value. So 
we decided, I mean, our founders discovered Bitcoin, uh, I guess, in the last couple of years. So they're latecomers. I've been into Bitcoin since I learned about it on Slashdot.com at the end of 2009. And I've been playing around with Bitcoin ever since. Um, so Bitcoin re really represents the best assets class anywhere on the planet for anyone um, to invest their savings in. That's what we believe. And I think the last 10 years have proven that demonstrably. It's objectively a fact that if you held Bitcoin for the last five years, you'd be far wealthier than if you hadn't. If you put that money into a, a bank account, for example, you'd be down by this stage. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. putting Bitcoin at the heart of a, a crypto-native neobank to deliver services around earning, uh, saving, sending, and paying is what Noah wants to do. And how did you come to realize that Building on Bitcoin could give you all of the tools you need to tackle all these all these initiatives, right? Um, like if you if you want to help people earn and save and, and pay, um, how how did you come to realize that you could do all of it on Bitcoin? So I think if we look at incentivizing behaviors, which is very much baked into Bitcoin, the incentives and the way that Bitcoin protocol works is all really around uh, the security comes from incentivizing the right groups of individuals to behave in certain ways. We applied that principle ourselves. So let's talk about the savings invest, um, incentives that we're going to put in place. You're probably aware that a, a, there's a lot, lot going on in DeFi space at the moment. There are a lot of ERC20 tokens on Ethereum, for example, that people can yield farm on, that kind of thing. Um, We've come up with a slightly different approach to this so that we can essentially create a liquidity pool, which is funded either by our own operational funds or for by different foundations. And what we will do is um, mint a certificate that will provide uh, whoever we issue that certificate to with a guarantee of uh, an annual percentage rate uh, based on a duration, a number of days and a time limit. Uh, so, so that is the duration and a cap, a US dollar value cap on which that particular certificate can be applied to, to incentivize saving. So if you would imagine, I'll give you a concrete example. You could say a 10% uh, APR with um, a 90 day duration on a thousand dollar cap. That minted badge, I'm calling it a NOAA badge for the time being, but we'll probably change the name has a value. It has a value of $24.66. And what we'll do is we don't want our customers to lock up Bitcoin with us. You know, we're providing a non-custodial wallet, and that's important for regulatory reasons. What we want to do is to incentivize behaviors that will allow our customers to earn that certificate, the NOAA badge, and they can then turn it on and off depending on how much balance they have in their NOAA wallet. And we will um, issue the, the, the APR earnings onto their Bitcoin account. Um, so I think it's quite novel in, in the way that we're doing that. The, fund, the funding in the liquidity pool is US dollars. Um, now in future, we could fund it potentially in Bitcoin as well, and that gets really interesting. But as we start in this process, I think we want to make sure that we can honor every um, promise that we make with these certificates to allow uh, people to begin uh, earning uh, on their Bitcoin. But I think what's more interesting is that we want to be able to solve a very particular problem 
and which separates frontier markets and, and emerging or sort of advanced economies. And what we want to do really is build an exchange that allows people that are time rich and capital poor to be able to exchange with people who are capital rich and time poor. And how do we do that? That's the problem that we really want to fix, um, building on top of a Bitcoin rail. And I think these certificates that we can mint ourselves, and eventually on one day I hope we can mint them directly on the Bitcoin blockchain, and that's something that we're looking at. But they can be exchanged. We will create a Noah markets, market space where Noah will be the market maker. So people who are earning these um, Noah badges by carrying out uh, actions that we're incentivizing them to earn Noah points that they can exchange for these things. If you can imagine, you're in a frontier market, you probably don't have a thousand dollars. So why why would you do anything to earn one of these? Well, the idea is that you can sell it to someone in an, in an advanced economy that does have a thousand dollars and that does want to take advantage of the APR that we're offering. Um, so I think we create that market space, we bridge that gap between those two groups of individuals that are time rich, cash poor on one side, cash rich, time poor on the other side. Does that make sense? Interesting. I have so many questions about this. This is, this is fascinating. It's definitely a novel take on building on Bitcoin. Um, can you explain more about how the liquidity pool works? I think, I think some listeners may, yeah, so, may be familiar with some liquidity pools in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, where they kind of like had their had their first moment. How, how does that work in the context of Yoa? Yeah, it, initially it really is just a safeguarded account, essentially. So we will be funding with our marketing budget, the liquidity pool. Later on, what I'd like to do is um, consider options of actually creating something on the Bitcoin ledger directly. That, so Noah will decide we want to spend $1,000 on marketing activities rather than give the money to Google for Google ads, which is what a lot of companies do today in order to acquire customers. My preference would be to be able to lock this in on the Bitcoin ledger um, and put something akin to a smart contract. And I think maybe with Taproot we can potentially build something interesting around this. But the idea is that it's entirely transparent and anyone can look at the value of the liquidity pool and compare that with the value of the um, NOAA badges that we've minted that represent the, that can only be created from the value that's stored in the liquidity pool. So day one, mm. it's uh, while we prototype the, the whole process, it literally is a, a safeguarded account um, in a traditional financial institution. But as we demonstrate that the product works and take it out of proof of concept, we'll build it directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then how, how do you go about distributing the badges and, and, and how do people go about earning them? That's a great idea. So, uh, great question. Um, there are a number of ways of doing this. One of them is to earn lower points. And what we want to do there is, again, incentivize uh, behaviors um, that we think lead to better life outcomes. And at the same time, we have to be commercially viable as an organization. So it could be simple things like engaging in social media to help us um, with our marketing campaign. That could earn you some lower points that you can exchange for a badge. Um, one of the, uh, we definitely want to be able to gift these as well. So we would invite um, institutions that are trying to increase financial inclusions to put liquidity into our liquidity pool and um, incentivize behaviors for 
uh, again, any, any individual that's time rich and cash poor can engage in an activity that let's say the charity wants them to engage in and they can earn points and exchange those for um, the tokens or they could be gifted directly as well. So if you wanted to uh, uh, incentivize saving behaviors for someone, you can just gift them one of these uh, badges. One of the things that we will do is uh, potentially we'll, I don't want to use the term airdrop because it's not the best term that you can use, but we call them invitations. So Noah will create invitations and, and give those to everyone who's in a, who already has a Noah account. Now, as the Noah customer, you can't use that for yourself, but you can invite someone else with the, with the badge to join Noah. And they can begin, um, if they, they have savings, they can begin saving, or if they want, they can sell the badge back um, I, to someone else on, on the NOAA community and begin earning, depending on their personal circumstances. And then there's one other way, which I, I think is really interesting as well. We, we want to incentivize, uh, this is all about incentivizing people to save. That's the, the underlying kind of principle. And one of the things that we want to do is not just individual saving, but groups or communities saving. So one of the things that we want to put forward is like a NOAA tribe, for want of a better term, where if a community has a particular savings goal, and that could range from infrastructure for clean water to energy, whatever, we can work with that particular NOAA community to um, propose what the badge could look like and what, what's required, what the saving goal is. And then we can work with people in the more advanced economies to fund that particular activity. I think the benefit there is that you're not just throwing money at people, um, which I don't think works very well. You know, traditional forms of development um, have, haven't been great when you're just throwing money at local kind of institutions and organizations, and all that money just disappears. So the idea here is that the community begins saving for themselves for a particular goal that they have in mind, and then someone in an advanced economy can boost those savings by minting a particular no badge for them and issuing that to them. Mm, I see. So, so over time, the interest earned in, through this badge is is going to be coming from people in advanced economies. Is that is that generally the idea? Well, I um, I would say yeah. I say initially it is, but actually, when you think about it, and um, it's coming from anyone who's time rich. Now, I think it's, it's worth considering um, not just from markets, but going a lot lower than that to directly to the individual level. Because I think in everyone's lives, there are points that we're uh, time rich, capital poor, and times where we're capital rich and time poor. And that I think will happen more and more. So I really wanna bring individuals together rather than say like, it's just gonna be rich people paying for poor people. I don't see it that way. I think. Um, throughout our own lives, there are definitely times where you have more money and less money. Like I could, Im and or, or more time and less time. Like I can imagine, for example, that there are plenty of wealthy people in frontier uh, eco economies that don't have the ability to easily sponsor um, or incentivize saving in their own community, um, not in a trustless manner, for example. Right. Okay. So if if I'm on Noah and I say I have a thousand dollars and I want to, I want to save, I want to, I want to earn income on it. Can you walk me through how that 
process happens from like from what I see as the as the end user looking for uh, looking to earn um, on my savings? Yeah, yeah, sure. So let, let's let's start with the fact that you don't have any money, right? I think that's a more okay. because this is where so I think earning is is the first step, yeah, in, in this journey. Right. Okay. So if if okay. you if you haven't got any money at all, you get access to the Noah application, and there'll be activities that you can pursue to earn points. And with the NOAA points that you earn, you can then uh, swap them for a NOAA badge. Let's stick with the uh, 10% APR on $1,000 cap for 90 days. So you've now got this badge, but you don't have any savings, let's say at the moment. So one thing you could do is just swap that and get the, you can put it on, that, that has an intrinsic value of $24.66. It's basically the APR okay, applied right. to $1,000 over 90 days, right? So you could put that on the market for $5 and someone will buy it for that amount. So now you've got $5. Let's say you earn another, you get to the point that you've earned $1,000 now, but that $1,000, you're dipping in and out of that. So one of the things that you could do with a NOAA badge is to activate the reward. So you finally got a, a NOAA badge that's available for 90 days. You've got $1,000 for two weeks, but then you know that you're gonna have to spend $500. What you can do with the NOAA badge is to turn off the, um, the reward. For So while you have $1,000 in your account, you can earn rewards on it at the maximum rate, 10%, and then you can turn that off, spend $500, and then when you get the other, when you're back to a thousand dollars, you can turn it on. So you, that way you can maximize the uh, reward that you get mm, for I saving see. the maximum amount that you can set. And I think this right. is achieved because we're not locking, we're not locking up any funds here. It's it's kind of because the token has been funded for upfront through the liquidity pool. We can give you that flexibility. We don't have to tell you like that. You have to put it into a ninety-day locked-up account, and and we'll penalise you for taking uh, your assets out earlier than ninety days. It won't work that way. You can just turn it off, turn the badge off, get on with your day, and then once you've uh, back to a thousand dollars, you can turn it back on and maximise the uh, rewards that you earn. Right. Do you have a Do you have a sense for what that interest? might look like like at a at a steady state or in a mature level where you've got a bunch of people who are looking for interest um what what would that demand look like and how how do you think about what rate you could offer i guess yeah i think the so the rate that we can offer very much depends on the other attributes so what is the cap on the badge so is it going to be a rate on ten thousand dollars or is it going to be a rate on five dollars and the duration how long is the certificate valid for? You can conceive that you could have a, like a, a five minute thousand APR percent on $50 badge. Now, you can play around with this stuff. It gets, it gets interesting. And I think it, it will give us that flexibility means that we can tailor the product on an individual basis. Ultimately, it will start with tailoring at particular markets because we'll see trends depending on the, the overall behavior of group of people in a particular region. But the, yeah, the value of the APR is really contingent on the cap and the duration of which the uh, rewards can be uh, applied. Mm, okay, I see. Um, so this is really fascinating. Do I, have it under, do I have a correct understanding when I say that 
it's built on Bitcoin and then the badge is built on kind of like a NOAA internal system right now. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, correct. If I'm just for full transparency, while we're prototyping this, it's quicker to do it with, as I've said, like with a bank account and with our own minting technology. And basically the certificate becomes, you do have to trust NOAA to, uh, to that, that we will honor that certificate. But this is why we, why we, while we are prototyping the, uh, the, the whole concept. Ultimately, it will be, um, the liquidity pool will be based on Bitcoin itself. The badge will be separate unless we can find a way and maybe we can get in with Taproot of minting certificates directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. But obviously, I'll pursue that approach if I can. I'm just not there yet at the moment. Um, so we'll probably right. use, um, we, to be honest, it's either an internal ledger entry that we maintain on our ledger, the, lo the lower ledger, which is not on the blockchain. Uh, well, it's on a centralized blockchain, is a way of describing it. Um, but ultimately, we would like to be able to mint those either on, ideally on Bitcoin, but if we need to use another technology just to mint those certificates, as long as it's transparent and secure, I don't think there's that much issue um, with whatever technology that we do, because the certificate just represents whatever's available on the Bitcoin blockchain, and anyone can validate that publicly. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, you guys are also non-custodial, right? You're Correct. building this yes. to not take custody of customer funds. Can you talk to me about what that thought process was and why this is so important? Yeah, it's regulatory, number one. So in here in the UK now, to operate a crypto asset business, you need a license from the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. Now, I've gone through this process before in a previous company that I worked for. We obtained an e-money institution license, which is like a neo banking license, and a 5MLD, which is a money laundering, fifth money laundering directive uh, crypto asset license. So we are applying for those licenses, at least the 5MLD one, not the e-money license. Um, and that will allow us to pursue custodial products and services um, in the crypto asset space. Now, why would you want to do that? If I'm really honest with you, it's because the user experience is a lot better with custodial um, services. And for a lot of our market segment, I think as much as we would encourage anyone to go self-custodial, um, I think you know, your keys, your crypto are kind of the goal for everyone eventually. Full sovereignty is the goal. But the reality on the ground um, and our experience of frontier and emerging markets is, and I hate to use this word convenience, convenience trumping um, kind of the, the sovereignty aspect, because convenience is a little bit of a weak word to use. Um, is it convenient that you can send money, uh, or it takes you eight hours to send money today and it may not arrive? Is that really convenience or is that a matter of life and death? You know, for some people, it's a matter of life and death. And custodial solutions make that really easy. Having said that, and we do want to pursue a custodial um, services eventually and make those available to those people that would want them. They'll be clearly marked as custodial and regulated services. But really to get to market quickly, we have to go non-custodial. That means the user experience is gonna be a little bit tougher, but we've put in a lot of effort to try and manage that key process and the way that the customer signs 
um, the transactions to make it as simple as possible. And we are really giving a lot of thought to social recovery. I, I think that's a, uh, that's, that goes a long way in managing uh, security for, for private keys. But our non-custodial wallet is based on MPC technology. So the reason why it's non-custodial is, you know, philosophically, a lot of your audience may disagree with this, but from a regulatory standpoint, it's still non-custodial. The key isn't held by any single entity. So let me take a step back. If you look at the spectrum of custody, you have custodial solutions on one hand, self-custody on the other, and in between is non-custodial. That's the way I look at it from a regulatory perspective. If no single individual has access to the private key, it's non-custodial uh, in a regulatory perspective. So by using multi-party compute and also an elliptic curve public-private key pair on the customer's device, we can ensure that we don't have the key, the customer authorizes everything using their uh, public-private ECC pair, and the uh, custodial service providers also don't have access to the key. Whenever we come to sign a transaction, um, we provide proofs of the key shards that we maintain in our custody. The custodial solution service provider provides their proof the private key is never shared over the internet, only the proofs are in, on an internal kind of secured internet. And the customer approves in a non-reputable fashion the transaction. So that's how we maintain non-custody. Mm, that's fascinating too. And, and that's a, it, it's a novel way of doing it. I haven't, I haven't heard of many other apps taking this approach. Where There what, are a couple of wallets that do yeah, there, there are a couple of wallets that have very similar approaches. Um, and I think, you know, I think Zengo is one of them. Uh, also, Wirex, I believe, are using a similar approach. Um, and I'm sure some of the other big players are using similar approaches for their non-custodial wallets. Um, and the key is here, I just want to be absolutely honest and open with everyone, it's a regulatory definition of non-custodial shit, not necessarily a philosophical one that many in the Bitcoin community would agree with. But I think we just have to, as a commercial entity, and in the, understanding the individuals that we're working with in these markets, we just believe that this is the best compromise we have at the moment to get into market without, without the regulatory um, burden that we, that we would need to really provide what I think are gonna be the best user experiences. Um, I do right. okay. genuinely think the best user experiences are custodial in nature. Right. That makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, there's a lot more I want to talk about on on the NOAA site because I've gone through it a little bit and I've, I've seen some of the yeah. teasers and some of the images you guys are, are um, posting right now. Um, there's one screen on your site that mentions credit. And... Yes. Um, specifically like a little credit card icon on one of the screens. Um, I want to hear more about this and how this might work and it, how are you, how do you determine credit worthiness on Bitcoin and Lightning? Um, is this using, are you guys using over collateralized loans or is it some kind of reputation system? I just have a ton of questions, so I'd love to hear more on the credit side of things. Yeah, you've said a lot there that I think already resonates with me, right? So ultimately, 
I would, again, going back to our nature as being cryptech, not fintech, I would love to be able to offer a credit card without using Visa and MasterCard, uh, which I've done in previous roles, right? I would love that. And we, we had brief discussion about maybe an NFC lightning-based card. Now, if you can hook me up with the right people who can provide the hardware and the, and the point-of-sale devices, I would definitely look at that. I mean, that's what really excited me about it. Um, and there's a lot we can do to measure credit worthiness. We will over collateralize kind of on our side. I think the, the credit will will be managed in a way that, yes, over collateralization is part of the story, but the lower points as well, we can start creating, um, for example, one of the things that we can do to establish uh, credit worthiness is incentivize customers to link their social media accounts to NOAA. And that will allow us to at least have some idea of who they are. It's not necessarily institutional grade KYC, but at least it's voluntary. And it's just whatever information that the customer is already happy to put out into social media. So if you can imagine a situation where you've linked your Facebook and your LinkedIn account, maybe your verified Twitter account, that gives us a lot of confidence that we know who you are, which helps to kind of improve your credit score. But then there's also, you know, we're building up uh, a pattern of our customers' saving habits, which we're hopefully incentivizing the way that I've just described. That will go a long way to creating an internal credit score for us as well. Ultimately, I think initially we just have to be um, careful that we can take a loss on credit. Initially, I think you, you have to step into this thinking, okay, credit is a great product. It definitely helps people in uh, in times of immediate need for cash. Um, but there is a risk associated with it, and we have to price that in. In the early days, the risk is going to be high. And then over time, the risk gets lower and lower until you, you have a sustainable credit product. I would love for that to be on Lightning, frankly. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, so I, I spoke with the team at Coin Corner in a previous episode, and they are releasing a NFC Lightning card which I believe is pretty similar. I, I, I don't know, like to the concept that we're discussing now. Um, they they have their own set of merchants as well. And so the Lightning card, mm -hmm. you can use at any of the Coin Corner merchants and it's just a payment over Lightning. It could come directly from yeah. your node even. It doesn't even have to come from your right. custodial account at Coin Corner. Um, and I just thought that was such a cool idea. It's still in my head. I still cannot cannot shake this idea that when you know imagine if if other businesses start to um also enable this for their merchants and for yeah. their users like right now we've seen square or, or cash app has turned on lightning integrations for the consumer side but the the business side the merchant side uh, at square uh, does not have lightning integration yet um, but i could see a world where you know there's a handful of companies that serve merchants whether that's Square, whether that's Coin Corner's merchant side of the business, um, whether that's a handful of others, um, they can all turn on and, and accept Lightning payments. And then the Lightning payments can come from any card issued by any company that, that uses Lightning, right? So like it could, be, it could be me using a NOAA card, a NOAA Lightning card at a Coin Corner merchant and it works. Or it could be me using a coin corner lightning card at a square merchant and it just works. And in that and, entire and, and process, I think there's no visa, th there's no that, master. That, 
and, and, and I think that's you, you need that kind of interoperability between and all of the partners on the Lightning Network because that's the only way that we're going to take market share from the incumbents. And, and I think that's the, you know, when, when if you try and from a traditional financial perspective take on these incumbents, you're going to fail. There's no way you will succeed. It will cost you far, far too much because you're acting on your own, essentially. You're just going to be another centralized service provider. You're acting on your own. You're disincentivizing anyone else to work with you to build the network. I think what Lightning's got going for it is this interoperability that you've just described is powerful. And I, and I think that's why it definitely has a chance. It has a fighting chance to establish itself despite of all of the um, barriers to adoption that exist today. Because if enough of us get together um, and dis interoperate with each other, um, and I think Lightning and the liquidity management uh, structure that it has it can also be used to incentivize this, you know, depending on how you set your fees up and who you link to. Yeah, it definitely has a chance, and I, I think it could happen quicker than people imagine. I, I've, I'm aware of potential projects uh, in Southeast Asia for like taxi drivers to accept Lightning payments, and I think what's interesting there, in, and other similar sort of projects, what's really interesting there is the use of Lightning URL. And we're going to have a Lightning URL enabled wallet day one. And, and I think what I like about that, and I think also the Lightning standard is probably going to change anyway, where you can have a fixed address that you can um, accept payments to. That, that's a huge convenience rather than having to generate invoices on either side to send and receive payments. So addressing that issue will go quite a long way. And then having a a lightning uh, URL as well, I think just makes, uh, it's a game changer in its own right. So we're really happy to support that standard. I think it's a big um, innovation in the lightning space. I mean, I'd love to work um, with point of sale service providers and card manufacturers. Um, and that's mm -hmm. something, uh, hopefully you can hook me up with the right people and we'll definitely look at um, partnering <laughs> with them. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, the other really, <laughs> Yeah, that'll be really appreciated. The other fascinating thing is, of course, cross-border payments. Um, now, the market for domestic remittance, I think, is really easy for, for Lightning. It becomes um, a, more challenging when you look at um, fiat to crypto cross-border remittance and the use of Bitcoin as a bridge currency. Um, we've talked to a couple of colleagues in South America around kicking ideas around how we can provide liquidity to them in the form of sterling and how they can provide liquidity in, in you know, local fiat currencies, essentially, over lightning. And that's something that's, um, I was in Tajikistan with Shah, our CEO, uh, a few months ago now. It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a long time ago. And there's a, the, 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 the um, remittance market, for the external remittance market, the foreign exchange market for Tajikistan, is a country of 8 million people. 9 billion is the uh, amount of the size of remittances mostly sent from Moscow to Dushanbe, so from Russia to Tajikistan. And the fees are extortionate um, and the service isn't great. You know, it could take a few days for the payment to be made. You've got to go to uh, the usual suspects to, to make the payment. Um, and fees can ultimately, you're talking between 8 and 12% fees, not just the exchange fees, but the all in fees. And if you think you, if you can reduce that fee to one to or one point five percent, the amount of market segment that you can take very quickly with payments being made over Lightning, but all that's really required there is the 
arrangements, the fiat on and off ramps in the in the two different countries. You need to make those arrangements. Unfortunately, there's no getting away from that. So you, it requires an exchange on either side and and banking face facilities on either side. But that's all it requires. Mm -hmm. The rest over Lightning is already built for you. And there's a real use case there. I think you know when we run run the numbers, you don't need to steal more than a few percent market share to break even. So there's an opportunity there. It's just difficult to put into practice. Yeah, how do you think how do you think companies should be going about approaching that problem? I know Strike has done it in in a few countries so far, um, specifically in El Salvador, where they have the relationship in both El Salvador and the U.S. and, and can make that remittance transfer. Um, what do you think? What are the challenges to expanding that globally? Like, I don't know much about the, the fiat on and off ramp side of things in different countries and how how those like regulations may get in the way. Um, I, I imagine there's a reason why it hasn't been done so far, and that it's it's just a difficult yeah. problem. But can you can you shine some light on like how what some of those challenges are and how we can kind of work to overcome them? It's political will, if I'm to put it bluntly. So, oddly enough, a lot of people don't know. I mean, we, we're in this community and we kind of eat, drink and excrete Bitcoin and Lightning on a daily basis. But you'd be amazed how many people don't. I mean, when I was in Tajikistan, I was quite surprised at how many people don't even know what Bitcoin is. Um, so part of it is the awareness is not at the right levels and the political will won't exist until they're made aware in the first place. Um, I think what NOAA can do because of the partnerships that we have from our investors who have years of experience in operating some of these frontier markets is that they can begin to have those uh, discussions with senior political leaders and the political apparatus in those countries and civil services that exist just to make them aware that these opportunities that are are available, there are they're available today, and all it takes is really is the political will to set up a proof of concept and to make some regulatory space to allow these um, new forms of remittance to be piloted. And I think we're always the first step is just to run a pilot. So you know, if if you are in a country. Um, and you have some, you know, you can go and talk to your local representatives or someone at a more senior level. I think the ask has to be, can can we have some political, uh, sorry, yeah, some regulatory space in order to carry out a pilot that demonstrates that the numbers that we have calculated are real and the savings are real. And I think if you can get to that point, um, and that could that could be with the help of international organisations. Or, um, then I think the pilot will be successful. I don't, I don't doubt it because we've seen it be successful. It's proven. Um, and I think that's the way that we should be approaching this. It's the only way right. I can think of right now, to be perfectly honest. Do you think the same kind of political and regulatory problem exists in uh, making payments over, like not remittances, but in day-to-day in -day payments using like Visa or MasterCard? Do you think there's some like regulatory lock in there that that Bitcoin has to yes. get around, or is it okay? Yeah, precisely how you, that. How do right? you, if you look, go ahead. How do we get around that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, it, it's it's to create a pilot scheme. I think what you can't do is go in there and say, um, well, unless you're the president. 
of El Salvador. You can't normally just go in there and say, we're going to set up shop and, and execute this function. I think what you can do is um, ask for that regulatory uh, space. So you say, we want to create a pilot program. We've done the feasibility study. We know what the technology is, and we've identified local partners that we can work with. So either exchanges or banks that already exist. And they may be fiat exchanges, um, sorry, forex, existing forex exchanges. You need to find those partners on the ground. Um, with those partners, you then ask for a um, some space to carry out a pilot scheme. Um, and the pilot, and very importantly, there has to be a next step. You're not just doing a pilot for the sake of it. If the pilot is successful, you need agreement from those regulatory bodies that you can move to the next step. And that next step may be going from 5,000 uh, people in a proof of concept in one town to can we roll this out in a region, in a state? And then if that goes successful and you meet those quality gates and those benchmarks, then you, you have to kind of lock in what the next step is every time. Otherwise, the problem will be you'll, you'll probably get your pilot because no one's paying any attention to what you're doing, but it will die there. It won't go forward and you get, get stuck again in like years of uh, negotiations. Right. So in a world where Lightning is the solution, let's say, for day-to-day -day payments and for remittances around the world, and a lot of these intermediaries are disrupted and a lot of fees get passed on to, to customers and to, to you know, people all over the world. Um, what do you think, do you think there are any interesting second order effects that will come from that? From passing fees yes. on to people? What does that lead to? What are, the, what are the things that people are not thinking about when, you know, someone in, in any country in the world can get a payment instantly and for free from any other country in the world? The, the narrative that I see here, and it's a really challenging one, I'm not, obviously not the only one, and I'm fascinated by people who have observed and talked about the phenomenon, which is basically separation of money and state. And that can't, it's not trivial. If you, if you look at the Reformation, it was a bloody mess for several hundred years. Um, we need to kind of, uh, that's the last time a function was wrestled from the state, a religion was separated from the state. So the timeline I'm looking at is basically one where individual sovereignty is increasing slowly and in fits and bursts. And I think we've reached a point where if we separate money from state, we're it's the most maximum sovereignty we've ever achieved for the individual. Now, it's not going to be easy. And I think some states might um, kind of uh, blindly walk into it without realizing what they're doing. But to be honest, most of the nation states do communicate with each other quite well. So I think, yeah, the separation of money from the state isn't going to be easy. And the second order effects are going to be colossal. And they're going to be as big as the Reformation. Um, if not bigger, mm. because there's more people alive today and there's more technology available to do more. So now I just hope it can, can be carried out peacefully, to be honest. That's the, my main concern is how, because I don't see it not happening. I just cannot see the juggernaut being stopped at this stage. You can't stop Bitcoin, it's demonstrably. Right. You know, maybe even if you make a quantum computer, I don't think you're going to stop it because it can change the algorithm in, in, in Bitcoin uses for consensus to overcome a quantum computer that can be done. Um, so if it can't be stopped, how are you going to deal with it? And I hope that it will be a case of the state slowly losing sovereignty to the individual. 
because right now also think states have way more power than they've ever had historically. So it's not a bad thing that we give individuals more sovereignty whatsoever. Um, how that plays out though, I have no idea. I just hope it's as peaceful as possible. Right. Do you think there's a way for states to make this transition to giving power back to people without first going through the issues of hyperinflation or, or some crisis? Like, do you think there's a, a peaceful handoff possible? Is there a precedent for that? Or is it just going to be like one country or a few countries get way into a hyperinflationary environment, people push back and, and kind of, uh, you know, take their own course. That's a fascinating question. Um, is there precedent for it? I'm not aware, if, I, if I'm honest with you. I, I mean, the, the nearest we have is El Salvador today. That's the nearest. And, and we haven't reached the point where inflation has really caused... Uh, the cat isn't 100% out of the bag. I mean, people are suffering, but it hasn't exploded yet. We, you know, we're not in uh, Weimar Republic or in um, uh, Zimbabwe yet. And as long as that situation can be avoided, then you can argue that the pressure for the final change is not there, although the juggernaut continues to keep moving forward. So you we've know, got to watch what, ha what happens in El Salvador, and I'm sure in other countries. This is only a matter of time that I think other countries will, um, alongside their own shitcoins, accept Bitcoin. And, and maybe the peaceful way um, the only peaceful kind of resolution here is that you never get away from the fiat currency. And I've had this d debate with people online. I, I don't think the US dollar is ever going away. I don't think the Iranian real will ever go away. As long as there's a nation state with a border, then it will demand taxes be paid in its local currency. I think what will happen, though, the, maybe the balanced situation is that most people will use that to pay whatever they owe the state but for everything else, they'll use Bitcoin. And I can see that, and effectively, Bitcoin being a bridge asset as well, um, the money of the world. Mm -hmm. I can see that situation. I mean, that's within the realms of possibility. And the weakening, um, while, while the state doesn't lose its fiat currency, it will be so weak. I, one situation is it will be so weak that no one really uses it for anything other than paying taxes, and they're happy to do so because they're paying less taxes year on year as it gets inflated away. Um, or actually the local currency will strengthen and we get better governance. Now I'm not I'm gonna hold my breath for that one, but maybe um, lawmakers will be actually elected into power because they understand that they have to keep money, um, but they have to have tight fiscal policy, otherwise Bitcoin will kick them out. That could have right. been. Yeah, it's just like a check on sanity, making sure that there's not insane money printing going on and, and you know, keeping keeping the economy in check in a sense. Um, yeah, and, and if they if, do insanely print money, then your liabilities to the state go down anyway. You don't care because you hold, hold Bitcoin. Right. But now, if you're the state, don't you think that over time, if Bitcoin, this juggernaut continues to roll on and it, it grows to a $10 trillion, $100 trillion asset, um, isn't there a certain point at which the state decides we would actually rather have taxes paid in Bitcoin um, rather than the local currency? Yeah. Like what, what would then the benefit be of being the state of receiving taxes in the local currency? It's a good question. Um, 
Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. What would the benefit be? Maybe it does go to zero eventually. Maybe they do get yeah. destroyed. And I think Michael Saylor said this, that we start with like the, the, you know, maybe five currencies remaining, you know, the Iranian real disappears, whatever other shitcoin currency people have disappears, and then you're left with the US dollar because everyone wants that already. You've got to ask the question, why do people want the US dollar? Is to pay for uh, it's the um, petrodollar. So that's why people, I mean, it's a bit more than that. International trade is conducted in USD, but that's reducing now as well. So I could even foresee a point where no one would want to hold the US dollar anymore. So, yeah, maybe that is the final step. It's just, I guess if the progression is slow, it could be peaceful. If it happens quickly, mm. I, I can't see it being peaceful. Right. Now, do you think we're at the stage in, in the Bitcoin and Lightning space to accommodate a fast transition? Like, in a, maybe this is like a not a peaceful transition, but if, if a country defaults on their debt or if we see a real bad hyperinflation episode in, in another country and citizens decide they want, to, they want another option, do you think we've in the Bitcoin community done enough to educate people and done enough to like bridge the gap between what exists today in the fiat system and the Bitcoin system? Or is this going to be like a Again, slow be trickle? I think you'd be amazed at how many people don't even know Bitcoin exists. For us, we're kind of dumbfounded when we, like we're just one or 2% of the population, literally, of the planet. There's so many people that don't even know that Bitcoin, never mind Lightning, exists. Or Now, how quickly that's changing, it is changing very quickly. And, and I think to your point, if there's a cataclysmic event where more than one country defaults at the same time, then yeah, I can, I can see that acting as a massive catalyst for the adoption of Bitcoin and Lightning by ordinary people. Um, what do they need to do that? They need access to the internet. So we know the next billion people are about to join the internet. That's happening. If they've got an internet connection, they need to be aware that Bitcoin exists. They need to, once they're aware Bitcoin exists, I think they'll take the same route as all of us have taken, which is suddenly we understand what money is. So you go down that road of educating yourself because all of it's done on the internet anyway. I think as long as, as, long as you speak English, you're probably in a good place. Maybe um, translating the Bitcoin standard into a number of other um languages will help quite a lot as well but i think once you've got access to the internet and you learn about bitcoin you educate yourself pretty quickly and then from then on what can stop you um the only thing is the convenience or the ability to actually buy goods and services using bitcoin and that's what lightning fixes so i think if we can establish a presence in a, a number of different countries so if I, if I had a lot of money to spend on uh, lightning adoption i would start rolling out pilot programs in as many uh, of the larger economies and the better internet connected economies as possible. So um, put like sow those seeds and then if you do have a cataclysmic event people will run into it in droves and you'll be ready to uh, accommodate the demand. Yeah. Are there any specific um, tactics or, or ideas you're playing with at NOAA to make it easier for people to eventually adopt Bitcoin when they realize the time is right? That's a wonderful question. And it goes back to um, the whole idea around Noah points, and it is to incentivize 
behaviors that we think are going to be, um, or we believe will uh, provide better life outcomes for people. So for us, it's a case of let's give this a lot of thought. What can we do that if you have five people who know who have no wallets, let's say, in, in a town of 10,000 size, what can we do to help those five people help themselves and spread the word? How, how does that work? And I think there are precedents, there are good approaches for you know, viral growth for any kind of mobile application. Um, the, the thing that we have to be careful about is making sure that that viral growth is ethical in the first place. So. Um, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from GameFi. Uh, I think the, the stuff that Axie Affinity, for example, have done, and like, there's no doubting when you see, read and uh, see pictures of families in the Philippines playing these games, eventually buying their own homes. That's a real news story. I think that's a viable thing that should be celebrated. I just wonder if we can do give them more choice than playing games. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's up to them and it gets them gets them from A to B, it's their decision, their choice, and I'm glad that the opportunity exists. But I just wonder from Noah's perspective, is there something else that we can do other than playing games that could be more productive for the local community? And this is where I think, rather than trying to solve that problem, I don't want to guess what's important for someone in Ethiopia. What I prefer to do is incentivize saving and give them a vehicle to solve their own problems. I think this is what we hear over and over again from our experience in frontier markets, especially for people in Nigeria who seem to be further ahead than any, any other nation that I've, like, nationality that I've spoken to. The message is like, just give us the tools and we know what our problems are, we'll fix them. Don't tell us what problems we have and what you want us to fix. Just give us the tools and we'll do it. So I think that, that actually relieves us of a great burden when we're not trying to solve other people's problems. But instead, we give them the means of solving it themselves. And all we do is incentivize what we believe to be a universally good behavior that's going to improve uh, life outcomes, which is saving. Yeah. I don't think anyone can argue that saving is a bad thing. Um, we should all be saving more. That's part of, part of Bitcoin's philosophy. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating, um, and I, I agree. I think I think we've corrupted the idea of saving almost in the last, especially in the last ten years. But but you know you can trace it all the way back to 1971 or the creation of the Fed in 1913. You can you yes. trace back as far as you want, I guess. But <laughs> um, what do you think some of the implications will be once people start saving? What do you think that does to society? Do you think do you think we're going to see broad sweeping changes. I know this is something that uh, that guys like uh, Saifedean in, in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, yeah. talk about how uh, there's going to be just these broad sweeping changes as a result of lowered time preference. Any yes. idea what, what you think some of those early early changes might look like? So it will definitely be a renaissance. I, I think, you know, the creativity will go through the roof. Now, what, what does that mean? Um, I mean, let's define technology first, because I'm a technologist, I'm a career technologist, and I, and I like to ask people what they think technology is. So, Kevin, can I ask you what you think? What is technology? What's your definition of technology? Um, I would say it is 
a tool to make life simpler or, or some, some new tool or some way of uh, improving some aspect of my life, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I like that. I mean, for me, technology is that which increases the ability and capability of human action very specifically. And so it could give you the ability to fly and then it can make, give you the capability of flying supersonically. Now, if we free up time um, and allow people to pursue their own interests, um, they'll very quickly kind of realize, I think, that the creativity that they can unleash. And that will be across all spheres of human endeavor. So it would, I definitely imagine it would be something akin to a renaissance where suddenly we fix a lot of problems that we should have fixed earlier and we could have fixed earlier. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> what can you say? You know, building cities in the sea, I, I don't know, like building cities in, in a, on the moon, colonizing the, 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 the rest of the solar system. The, the space is the limit, I guess. I am very, very optimistic. Um, that if we solve this problem, we solve so many other problems. Um, there will be a group of people, though, that <laughs> will not be very happy about it. Um, I think it's a societal problem. Um, to your point, when you disintermediate the financial system, you are disintermediating an awful lot of people who work there. And they'll be scared. There'll be a, a healthy dose of fear, I think, in, in a lot of people, because they're nine to fives doing mundane, uh, useless tasks. Will, they won't have that to fall back on. And many people, they identify with their jobs as well as part of what they do. And we have to tackle that. I think we can't just um, ignore it. If we want this um, venture to turn out peacefully and in an equitable way for the majority of people that participate in it, then we have to think about what happens to all these people that we disintermediate from dying industries, dying financial sector, for example. And I'm hoping... Um, you know, the creativity that's unleashed initially by the first portion of people that liberate themselves from the fiat standard will go a long way in helping to alleviate the concerns for the rest of the, let's say, 95% of the population that follows. Let's hope that's mm, the case. Interesting. So here's a, here's a question for you. If, if you were the CEO at Western Union or PayPal or Visa, and it was up to you to make sure you didn't get intermediated and, and that your, your business didn't fall apart in the face of Bitcoin and Lightning adoption, what are some of those actions you would take today? Like, like how would you reposition the business wow. knowing that you have a, an income stream today that's keeping your business alive, but you know that that's going away in the future? Wow. Um... I would hope if I was in that position, I would do what I will tell you I'm going to do now, which is embrace the change and you know, outpace the competition in developing it, <laughs> basically. Um, I don't see an alternative. I think it's hubris. Um, and, and maybe you could, that's a, you know, it's human nature. And that, look, if I'm being really kind to the executive team at um, one of these payments institutions that you described, I would say that their biggest, maybe they're thinking about the damage it's going to cause to their, not just the bottom line, but their employees as well. And, and they have this income stream coming in and they decide that, look, we can't, we can't get rid of 50% of our staff tomorrow because we adopt lightning. Like, how can we do that? 
But the reality is, I think it's going to happen, and they should be embracing the change. It goes, I think, it goes directly back to the question that we asked earlier. So, what, what more happens? Well, I think you have a very efficient organization, and you have to think about well, what what can we do to educate people to use these new payment rails, and maybe you can assign a big chunk of your workforce to that task of education and um, adoption of these new technologies. And then maybe while they're in that process, they actually think of some new things to do. Um, because mm -hmm. I doubt these people are thinking very hard about the future. I think they're fairly comfortable where they are and they're running, working hard to keep the rails on because let's face it, these traditional uh, cross-border remittance rails are very hard work. They require constant monitoring. Um, liquidity management is an absolute nightmare. They've set up very sophisticated systems to manage liquidity globally. Um, when that disappears, what are you going to do with these people? But um, I think that you have to embrace the change. It's coming. So the further it's coming, as we say at NOAA, um, you can you can't really stand in front of it. You can just get onto the arc. <laughs> right. So, how do you view competition at NOAA? Do you do you view some of the traditional payment processors as competitors, or are you are you looking more at Square and Cash App and that kind of competitor, or yeah. or do you think you're I, kind I think of in a in a new sphere? I think um, Square and Cash App we draw inspiration from the. The markets that we're operating in are huge. There is room for more than one player. Um, let's be absolutely clear about that. So, um, yeah, they're definitely inspiration. We we think we can certainly be able to compete in certain areas at the same level with these organizations. Um, as I said to you earlier, within earning, saving, uh, sending, and paying, there are competitors in all of those uh, product segments for us. Um, and yeah, our growth may may be predicated on taking market share from some of those competitors. But actually, I think our, our growth is going to be um, a lot of it is going to be organic and not directly competing. Um, certainly not with you know not with the global entities immediately. Um, so yeah, more inspiration rather than competition at this stage. Right. Okay. That's awesome. Um, I want to finish this off with uh, hearing some of the lightning applications or Bitcoin applications that you find exciting outside of NOAA. Anything that in particular comes to mind? I would love to be able to, um, I guess, I think we can do so much more with the Bitcoin ledger. I think we can do an awful lot more of it. I think a lot of the innovation that we're seeing, let's say on Ethereum or some of these other technologies. And look, I'm, I'm a maximalist, but I'm not a toxic maximalist. I've been using Bitcoin a long time, so I don't need lectures from toxic maximalists on Bitcoin. But I think we, we do need to invest more in the core ledger, and we do need to invest in layer two. Um, there's a lot we could be doing around smart contracts, around um, minting of NFTs, for example. Um, I think we, rather than just aping what's happened, um, in that space, pardon the pun, but it's. I think we can think about new products and services that can live directly or on layer two or even layer three, um, but use Bitcoin as their, their core um, security and uh, transparency infrastructure. 
So, yeah, I, I think the future is bright for Bitcoin. We just need to be uh, a little bit more imaginative about it. Um, like, like you said, the Lightning URL is the kind of thing that I, where, where we put convenience, um, where we focus on consumer con con convenience, I think that that's going to keep Bitcoin very relevant for a broader number of people. Because again, to be clear, I think it's one the money argument. Right? No, one's, uh, no one should be arguing against Bitcoin as the soundest money. Uh, you know, it's not Ethereum, that's for sure. And it's not other uh, technologies that I don't think you can even compare with Bitcoin, to be, to be perfectly honest. Not as a money. Um, but in terms of other financial instruments, Bitcoin can be leveraged to create other financial instruments. And it should be, because I think that that gives those financial instruments an edge. What those are, I'm hoping one of them is the lowest savings incentives. We should come up with a better name for that once we migrate it onto a fully uh, Bitcoin-backed blockchain. But um, yeah, I imagine it will be kind of products like that. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm really excited for this launch. Thank you so much for taking the time today to discuss what you're building at NOAA and, and the future of Bitcoin and Lightning. Really fascinating discussion and uh, wishing you all the best with the, the launch and, and the, the rollout of NOAA. Thanks, Kevin. Get get onto our uh, uh, Discord and Telegram groups if you're not already on there. Um, I try. Yeah, and hold where, those where can people go to find out more about Noah? Yeah, I mean the the best place is just go to the website, scroll to the bottom, and I think this there are links to Discord and Telegram. And I'm we're we're, we're all active on Discord more than Telegram, but we'll be on both. And if you want the latest information on what's going on, that's the place to find us. We're in beta internal testing right now. So the whole team is testing our M1 release. The details of what's in that release are on Discord. Um, and hopefully, I'm gonna, we'll be opening up to um, the first batch of friends, family, and founder members in the next couple of weeks. Um, so you'll be able to see how everything works, give us your feedback, we'll fix bugs, no doubt there'll be loads of them. Um, and then we'll launch soon after that. Awesome. I'll check out the Discord. Thanks again for taking the time. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheers. You too. Welcome to the Lightning Round presented by Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning Node infrastructure. Many of the apps and services you already use in the Bitcoin and Lightning ecosystem already use Voltage um, to scale their business quickly and easily without any maintenance. Um, Voltage also offers an inbound liquidity product called Flow that helps you as a node operator get inbound liquidity quickly and easily. Um, overall, Voltage is creating the industry standard of non-custodial products, helping brands and startups and entrepreneurs scale. To learn more about Voltage, visit Voltage.cloud. All right, let's get into it now. This was a record week for Sat sent into the show. It was another huge week of supporters and messages. We had eight different supporters send in sats this week, five sent in messages, uh, and six shows were boosted this week. Six different episodes of The Kevin Rook Show. Uh, quick rundown of the top supporters this week. Coming in at number one with a record high payment, uh, TKMIMICE, that's the username, uh, 199,000 sats sent in. That is by far the largest amount 
of sats anyone has sent in to this show to date. Uh, second place is Mary Oscar, who has sent in 3,465 sats in the last seven days. BTC Rich, who has sent in 1,683 sats in the last seven days. Bitspooky, who has sent in 990 sats. And J24, who has sent in 701 sats in the last week. Uh, that's the bar. That's the, that's the level it takes now. That bar continues to rise if you want to be in the top five every week. Uh, it's now 701 sats is the the bar to beat. Let's go through the comments. Uh, first one comes in from TKMIMICE, uh, and this is this is Tom. Uh, I I was on Tom's podcast earlier today, and Tom sent a message said, "Thank you for sharing uh, on our podcast today." We were talking about lightning podcasting, uh, and so Tom sent in 198,000 sats with that question. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tom, for the enormous boost. Um, that's by far the biggest one I've received. It's pretty close to one of the biggest ever sent on fountain. I believe the biggest boost ever sent is 570,000. So 198,000 for a single boost is pretty high up there in terms of lightning podcasting. Next comment comes in from Bitspooky, and Bitspooky says, Brilliant episode, excellent, in response to episode 19 with Andre Neves. Andre was great in that episode. If you have not seen it already, definitely check it out. It's already one of the most popular episodes of the entire show. BTC Rich had the same sentiment. It's a great listen. Love the currency preference idea in the Lightning address. LNURL is winning the customers over. I couldn't agree more. Um, BTC Rich also sent in their lightning address for a shootout with Raven. Unfortunately, I saw this message after publishing the last episode, uh, where I gave away 1900 sats to Raven. Um, but what we're doing this week is another voltage node giveaway. If you would like a free month on voltage, you can send in your email address or your Twitter handle, some way for me to reach out to you. And I will give you a coupon for a free month on voltage. Uh, so you can send that over the Lightning Network. Uh, next comment comes in from African BLC. It says, Kevin, this show was great. And this is response to episode 18 with Keegan McClelland. Uh, like you, I learned tons. Thanks for the great podcast. Keep it up. Thank you for the sats, African BLC. Uh, if there's any guests you'd like to see featured in, in future episodes, let me know. Send in some comments and then... Uh, some guest ideas. I'm always looking for new guests. Finally, J24 says, as a podcaster, do you see the timestamps of boosts? As in what part of the episode I'm at when I hit it? Uh, yes, J24, I do. I see um, the timestamp. I see the episode. Uh, I see the amount of sats. Um, Fountain's got a great dashboard for all this stuff. This is by far the easiest way for a podcaster to check out what is happening on their feed uh, in terms of Lightning Network payments and messages. Uh, so yes, I can see all your comments, the exact timestamps, I can categorize them, I can sort by weekly, monthly, I can sort by three months, all time. Um, I got dashboards to see income levels. It's a really cool dashboard for podcasters. If you are on the Lightning Network, I highly suggest you use Fountain uh, to manage your podcasting, your lightning podcasting. Uh, 
so as I just mentioned, this week what we're doing is if you would like a free month on a Voltage node, uh, send in a comment over the Lightning Network with your email address or your Twitter handle, and I will pick one winner and I will send them a coupon for a free month of Voltage. Can't wait to see all your comments and questions this week, and I'll talk to you soon.